0: Over the last couple decades, you know, everybody was looking at how the Russians are developing their capabilities. And we, I, I strongly believe that we have to come to the conclusion that whoever is fighting a conventional war is, is out of their mind because they don't understand, uh, you know, 21st century.
1: Hello there, listeners. Welcome to Conversations with Belarus Freedom Forum. It has been seven weeks since Russia invaded Ukraine causing death and destruction on massive scale and shocking the world with the sheer brutality of its actions. The discoveries of hundreds of civilians executed in the Ukrainian city of Bucha are heart-rending and difficult to comprehend. We are essentially seeing World War II-era war crimes happening in 21st century Europe. But as terrible as it is, it's not the only thing Russia shocked the West with. Throughout this invasion, the Russian army has demonstrated its profound incompetence, lack of discipline, and any sufficient planning necessary for such a military operation. So, have we overestimated Russian military capabilities? Our guest today argues that more than that, we underestimated the ability of smaller countries to defend themselves. Dr. Shander Fabian is a military scholar who specializes in asymmetric warfare and resistance and for years have been exploring how smaller countries can successfully defend against military threats like Russia. Dr. Fabian is a non-resident fellow at West Point Modern War Institute with extensive academic experience, including publications on Russian military strategy. He's also a seasoned military officer, having served 16 years in Hungarian special forces, which at some point included a senior position at NATO Special Operations Headquarters in Belgium. In our conversation, Dr. Fabian explained to me that rather than dismissing the conventional strength of the Russian military, we should pay attention to the approach Ukraine has taken to counter it, and that other countries in the region can learn quite a bit from Ukraine's successful defense. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Dr. Fabian, thank you for finding the time. Russia has commenced an invasion of Ukraine a little bit over a month ago, and um, we expected to see a well-rounded operation a modern blitzkrieg if you will that's certainly something uh, russians were hoping for and we have seen anything but and russians are struggling to make any new gains there so um what happened like could you explain to me from your professional standpoint uh how was that possible i thought russia was supposed to be the big scary boogeyman of the region the second um, most capable army in the world and it doesn't appear to be the case
0: yeah so it's a first of all. Very, thank you very much for the invitation. I, I'm I'm glad to be here, and and I really appreciate your interest uh, to listen to my kind of uh, point of views on on this whole topic. So th- there are two things that uh, we have to consider. One is everybody looking at the conflict and Russia through a Western kind of lens, and uh, everybody is trying to kind of do a mirror imaging. You know, what would constitute success for the U.S. military, or what would Uh, what would you expect from from NATO or Western military in a similar situation? And uh, people are, just like you said, everybody in the West was saying, okay, if this whole conflict ever happened, it's going to be a blitzkrieg. The Russians are going to overwhelm the Ukrainian defense very quickly, and uh, they are going to occupy the entire country, overthrow the regime, uh, potentially uh, put a puppet in place. And uh, this whole thing is going to be done in a, in a couple of days uh, for example mm-hmm. however i think that's that's a mistake because if you look at uh, russian history they had no problem with long wars and also they have no problem especially with with large amount of casualties so uh, on the western side everybody was or would say a military operation is successful if it's very swift and if the casu- the number of casualties is is very very low because that's how the west have been and again, the U.S. Uh, has been approaching conflict uh, for a very long time. However, uh, the Russian military culture is completely different. And uh, again, all these analyses that, that we are seeing from, from Western and American experts is based on that kind of mirror imaging. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the expectation uh, up front was a little bit uh, faulty mm-hmm. just because of, because of that. So what happened that what happened is the Ukrainians are actually uh, put up an extremely effective resistance. So what's happening is since 2014 the US and NATO uh, had put a lot of investment into improving the capabilities of the of the Ukrainian military and just like the Baltic states the Scandinavian states kind of sat down they they took a very critical look at their existing conventional military capabilities and they realized that uh, given the time, space and force ratio between these countries and Russia at that time was, was extremely you know, asymmetric. Russia had the overwhelming advantage. Yes. They said, okay, given this, this aggressive Russia posture and, and the, obviously the, the annexation of Crimea. So they said, we have to come up with an alternative strategy, an alternative solution to try, kind of offset this, this Russian overwhelming capability. So they started to to build this uh, kind of whole of society uh, approach when they said, okay, the government and the military obviously have a major role in defending uh, Ukraine, but uh, we have to bring in civilians uh, as well and tap into the the larger society. And then with all the Western help, they started to build this uh, kind of resistance based uh, military strategy and the West started to pour. Uh, specific equipment and weapon systems into Ukraine to kind of support and enable uh, this kind of activity, what we are saying, seeing from them. Mm-hmm. And since the occupation or, or the invasion started, uh, then I, I think the, the West actually marshaled uh, a, you know, never seen kind of support uh, for the Ukrainians and the amount and type of uh, weapons and equipment is first of all very unique because uh, some of these systems were not available to to any foreign country before, but but also the amount, the 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 quality of of different uh, support and and the systems. But again, these are supporting this specific kind of not a tank on tank large military formation or military formation in the open field kind of Second World War type of military actions. But but more this uh, urban resistance uh, kind of based based activities, which to be honest makes me very happy and very sad because I have been arguing for for this for small countries over ten years as a defense approach and. Uh, basically my theory is being tested every day now in ukraine but at the same time obviously because of the the, the, the losses the casualties and and just the the human tragedy that we are seeing uh, that i would have been much happier if we could get to this point without an actual conflict but Unfortunately, that, that is what it is. So basically, first of all, uh, everybody is looking at the Russians as it was a Western military designed for Blitzkrieg and, okay. and a military who cannot uh, tolerate lar- large casualties, which is historically not the case. And the second that, uh, again, given the force space and, and, uh, and time ratio between Russia and Ukraine, uh, the Ukrainians uh, with the very big help and support of the West, they created a, a purpose-built strategy uh that actually was designed against a such a a russian uh operation and mm-hmm. that's what we are seeing it's it's actually working out effectively
1: it's interesting because i believe most of the confusion and surprise came from the fact that it is a common wisdom to expect that a bigger and richer and more capable country um when it attacks a smaller one it's always going to win and um From this perspective, uh, Ukraine's success against Russian troops is surprising and inspiring, just as you said. And uh, I bet other smaller European countries clearly took note of it and can learn something from it. My question, though, is how universal and how applicable is what Ukraine is doing right now um, to other cases? Because, well, we can argue that Ukraine is a smaller country compared to Russia, but at the same time, um, as Ukrainians like to point out every now and then, Ukraine is the biggest European country. So it's definitely bigger than the Baltic states combined, or Poland for that matter. Is the same approach Ukrainians are using right now going to be applicable in these smaller cases of smaller countries in Europe?
0: So that that that's exactly my argument uh, for the last ten years. So if you if you first of all, what the Ukrainians are doing is not surprising too much, because if you look at some studies out there and some data, they show that you're, during the last two hundred years, when there was a a underdog or a smaller entity fighting against a technologically numerically superior enemy, thirty percent of the time the, the the weaker side actually won, and then the last fifty years actually. 55 percent of the conflicts were won by the weaker side and only 45 percent were won by by the stronger side. My argument is if you look at you know the smaller countries and when, when, when we talk about smallness, it's not necessarily or I, I would argue it's not about the size of the country or the GDP or the military budget or, or the size of the military it's simply whether or not a country is facing a much more capable, potential aggressor. So in this case, Ukraine is a large country, but compared to Russia, a, a, as a conventional military capability perspective, was the underdog, the, the weaker side. When it comes to the Baltic states or the Scandinavian states or any, any, uh, any European states who might believe that uh, Russia is a threat for them, uh, I, I would argue that this is the only way that the only actual uh, viable option for them, because let's be honest, the ultimate goal is national survival, and and how you ensure national survival, and the Scandinavian and Baltic states, at least and Poland, they already recognize this, and they started to develop their concept that they call it total defense or comprehensive defense strategies, when they they kind of realize that what they have is is not going to work, and they they try to augment. Uh, and then like strengthen their defense capabilities with tapping into territorial defense forces, kind of guerrilla type forces and 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 defense leagues and, and basically tapping into the, the larger society and uh, and building this kind of resistance force. However, there is a big, big logical problem here because if they realize that resistance is the way, they should actually build a a purpose designed and specifically designed force that is fighting resistance-based wars. Because you remember conventional militaries were designed and built and trained and educated and equipped to fight conventional wars. So now we are saying, we understand that we cannot fight conventional wars because we are gonna lose. So we are going to fight this resistance-based force. But right now there is a missing link that people are trying to do that with, you know, half professional civilians and also a conventionally designed force and by definition they are not going to get the optimal results because this is not a professional resistance force so i will stop there and uh, you know <laughs> we can we can go in any direction you want you want to go
1: it's it, it sounds a lot like uh, what the ukrainians are doing here so uh, certainly a lot of dots to if connect I, here if i
0: make a sure. comment on, on that so many many experts are are arguing you know that uh, what the Ukrainians are doing uh, is that. However, again, if the Ukrainians realized 2014-16, so six years ago, that this is what they are going to do, and obviously they did because they're doing it very effectively, but because they are not doing it with a professionally designed, trained, educated military force, resistance, professional resistance force, these effectiveness, what we are seeing, is still suboptimal. Because they are using civilians or, or part-time soldiers to to do resistance but also they are using professional conventional soldiers to fight these kind of wars
1: So what you're saying is that they can do even better
0: yes yes that that's that's my argument that if other countries looking at this what they are seeing and and you know do their own analysis, they should actually arrive to the logical conclusion that it can be done even better
1: I see. I see. Speaking about other countries, I'm I'm talking mostly about NATO now. Um, Three years ago, you published an article in Defense and Security Analysis titled um, The Russian Hybrid Warfare Strategy, Neither Russian Nor Strategy, which, in my opinion, sums up Russian performance in Ukraine up to this point pretty well. But in the article... You suggest that the collective West basically perpetuates this myth of Russian military strategic genius, this mirror image, right? So today, uh, NATO is similarly apprehensive about Russia's plans to invade a NATO country. Do you think this is yet another overestimation of Russia on our part, or is there an actual real threat of Russia attacking
0: NATO country? I think it's an overestimation uh, just so if, if you don't look at, uh, you know, the, the strategic calculations, just the capabilities itself. Yes. Russia, does Russia have the capability to actually attack and potentially occupy the Baltic States and maybe Poland or part of Poland? Yes. Physically, they, they have the numbers to do that. Is there any strategic reality? Why would they do that? Or is there any benefit they can, you know, kind of hope for, uh, out of that, there is basically zero. Uh, there is there is nothing they can gain uh, from that. The other thing, the risk of uh, of serious, you know, response obviously from from NATO and an inevitable Russian uh, defeat in, in that case, it, it's also clear. Mm-hmm. And then the only only option is ob- obviously nuclear exchange, which again you you can you can hear you know experts arguing for both sides. Uh, my personal opinion—that's that's also very—the uh, probability of, of such an escalation is is extremely close to zero. Uh, I just think you know, the, the Russians don't don't want to die either; they they want to remain. <laughs> so I, I would say, obviously, just like any great power in the history, they do some 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 very serious uh, strategic calculations, cost benefit uh, calculations. Yes. Uh, did I foresee, for example, that they would uh, you know attack Ukraine? Yes. Uh, The only mistake I I would say I made, I I did not expect that they would go uh, for Kiev and and regime change, but I definitely uh, expected uh, what they are doing uh, at the coast of the Black Sea and trying to connect uh, the Crimea with the the separatist regions and, and create that kind of territorial, you know, standing territorial conflict within Ukraine. So again, obviously the the threat is there and and the defense professionals always have to prepare for the worst and, and have, have the appropriate uh, plans. But I think the current geopolitical situation in general, it it does, does not allow any, any move from, from the Russian side against, against an uh, an NATO country. The risk is too high and there is no gain to actually, to real gain, to, to get there. So i I wouldn't, I wouldn't say like a, a, an actual attack or, or actual occupation. Now some provocation here and there that that's potentially maybe possible, but or the probability is higher. But but an actual actual offensive against a NATO country, I, I think it's it's very close to zero.
1: Gotcha. And I'm glad you've mentioned Kyiv, by the way, because um, we know that the only reason Russia was able to get so close to Kyiv is because it launched its attack from the territory of Belarus. Um, with this in mind, I was wondering how. Crucial, do you think Belarus is to Putin's military ambitions in Ukraine and perhaps even to Russia's strategic considerations in the region?
0: You know, it, it doesn't matter how you call uh, Belarus. Uh, if you have a, a physical location uh, situated that strategically, um, you know, within the, the, the geo uh, location of, of Belarus, mm-hmm. that, that's, an, that's an outstanding advantage. It, it has so many military. Uh, importance uh in Belarus if you want to attack you know Ukraine if you have to have kind of a little bit of buffer uh, it, it definitely serves multiple multiple uh reasons uh, why why it is is very important so I, I think from from any kind of military ambition or, or any kind of uh, not just against Ukraine but but again uh, from a defensive perspective or if you really want to make the argument to to at least uh, keep the threat uh, against NATO countries alive, Belarus is 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 strategically just extremely important because of the location, because of the access, and and when it comes to Ukraine, obviously it gives an an opportunity to actually kind of open multiple fronts and and create this kind of diverse uh, dilemma for for any defending country. So
1: I see you mentioned that Belarus is a good resource in keeping the threat to NATO countries alive. And it makes me wonder, do you think NATO should somehow address this involvement of Belarus on the same level NATO is currently reacting to Russian aggression? Maybe there should be a containment plan in place or a set of sanctions uh, just as severe as it is for Russia. I guess I'm calling upon your expertise as a political scientist now. Um, It just feels like... At the moment, everyone seems to be focusing on to Russia and what Russia does, and not so much on Belarus, even considering its important strategic location and how useful it has been to Russia up until now.
0: Yes. But at the same time, you know, Belarus being strategically important for Russia, it can be potentially strategically important for uh, NATO and for the U.S. as well. So you don't necessarily want to alienate uh, a you know, society of a country by kind of overreacting uh, with your sanctions and, and everything else. So Belarus is, is, is a country that if you can win over, uh, then, then you gain a, a major strategic uh, advantage. And we have seen uh, over the last couple of years that Belarus is, is not necessarily as a well-established system as, as Russia uh, with the, with the recent elections and, and, and with some of the, the, the aftermath of the of the election, so uh, the, the West might seize an opportunity there uh, if if they can actually exploit uh, the divisions within within Belarus. Then then might be a chance to, even if you know the West is not winning Belarus over completely under its influence, but maybe kind of weakening the ties with with Russia. So uh, Russia cannot exploit these the strategic advantages that Belarus can offer to the same level uh, uh, as as they can, and probably that's one of the reasons why why the West uh, is not really implementing such a harsh uh, you know sanction package uh, against Belarus. Also, it, it, it's it's kind of. No, I'm not saying clear, but but that there is no, not much messages coming out from Belarus that the society in general is really uh, supporting this this whole Russian uh, operation, and and we don't really see you know thousands of thousands of uh, Belarusian uh, volunteers uh, going into Ukraine on on the side of of Russia. So I think maybe the West looks uh, looks at Belarus right now as more like a ally who's uh, of Russia, whose whose territory is being utilized, maybe not by its own choice. So it wouldn't be, it wouldn't serve the best purpose of of the West to kind of go after Belarusia the same with the same kind of harshness that they are going after after uh, after Russia, because obviously it's quite established that at least in the West that Russia is the aggressor here. And if they stop doing, then Belarus probably will not. Kind of start a war with Ukraine by itself mm-hmm. uh, so so belarus is is not considered as as kind of a number one or or the or part of the the whole aggression uh, this way I think it's
1: interesting how you position Belarus as this not necessarily wholeheartedly committed to russia country in the region let's put it this way indeed, some critics and um, political opposition to the country's regime is um, considering the country under a military occupation, both uh, Russian military occupation and that of the country's dictator, Alexander Lukashenko. And we have seen the people in Belarus resisting um, that kind of regime and that kind of occupation, both since 2020 and since the um, invasion of Ukraine began. So I was wondering if you can... See or imagine any way for Belarusians to resist more fe- effectively and to fight and win, perhaps? Is there, you know, a way for us to hope for something like this happening?
0: You know, well, obviously the the ties with Russia is is uh, is a little bit different than the other countries because Belarus is is still kind of under the Russian influence after the end of the Cold War. But uh, I would I would say you know if if there is a a will or or if there is an interest from the society in general to to maybe uh, go in, into a different direction as far as the the, the political uh, situation and the regime, then um, they. Can look at you know other European countries, other countries who were part of the former Soviet Union, or other countries who were part of the Warsaw Pact, and 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 maybe you know try to take some of the elements of how they actually first of all distance themselves, and then how they they became independent. For example, the Baltic states. Uh, who were part of the Soviet Union, but uh, other European countries who, who were just part of Warsaw Pact. So I, I think, you know, you need society to unify uh, and which is all, all, always very, very difficult, especially when, when you have a regime that kind of creates a, a privileged kind of group of people who, who have no interest to change anything. Uh, and obviously there are a lot of dangers. It can can lead to either civil war within the country or, or just major oppression from from the government entities and all that, so it's always a difficult, very difficult question. But I, but I think, uh, yeah, looking at the other countries trying to organize uh, in a way, which I, I think you know, some of the opposition definitely is is doing, uh, that that can kind of build into this approach when 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 you can uh, enforce or incentivize uh, political change. Do
1: you think the this should... is something that we can see happening in Belarus?
0: couple of months down the road, maybe a year down the road? Uh, to be honest, I, I don't know too much about, you know, the domestic or, or the societal, uh, societal kind of foundations. The, the issue is, although, you know, we had the Hungarian revolution in 56 and the Czech revolution in, in 68, the, this whole kind of uh, violent regime change is, is not really culturally or historically a thing in Europe, if you really look around. So European people kind of has this historical heritage that, you know, we, we, solve our problems politically or, 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 or trying to find a solution outside of, of, of conflict and, and especially severe conflict within the society, because we are, you know, one people, one society kind of European, uh, the Belarusian society is, is also very homogeneous. So, yeah. So I, I think that's, that's one of the reasons why, why this kind of violent change, is not necessarily something that europeans would you know fear so i see just like it happened you know in ukraine as it happened in, in belarus already there are already sometimes you know uh demonstrations and and people are expressing their their hopes and needs for change mm-hmm. but I, I just don't don't really see it uh in a violent kind of like a civil war or or insurgent way it's just not not a European thing, but you probably know more about that. So I believe that with you. Gotcha.
1: Um, last question for you. And um, I think I'm going to finish with something more um, philosophical for you to address. We have seen Russia's attempt at regime change in Ukraine um, through conventional war failing. I guess we can confidently say that it was a failure. And this fiasco um, makes me wonder. Are large-scale conventional wars even feasible these days? Because earlier in the conversation, you've uh, mentioned this historical trend of the underdogs winning. I can't help but connect this to the development of the military technology as one of the factors, but maybe there is something else. Is there something bigger going on? Should we consider... Russia's poor performance as an indication that the same kind of wars and conflicts uh, the Soviet Union fought in the 20th century are no longer acceptable or useful means of altering states' borders?
0: So two, two points. Uh, one is I would caution, you know, saying that uh, this is a fiasco for, for the Russians, and, the, and poor, poor performance because that's kind of the mainstream kind of message all over in, in Western media. We are not really sure, you know, what the original strategic goals uh, were for the Russians. So I, I, I would just caution, you know, kind of saying, okay, now now the Russians are done because they, they are, they're they just performing poorly. They are not meeting uh, their goals and, and all that. But the second thing, I think you are absolutely right because over the last couple decades, you know, everybody were, were watching how the Americans uh, fought in Iraq and Afghanistan. Everybody was looking at how the Russians are developing their capabilities. And we, I, I strongly believe that we have to come to the conclusion that whoever is fighting a conventional war is, is out of their mind because they don't understand, uh, you know, 21st century. And that's why I'm saying small countries must abandon this whole idea that they would defend against Russia, China, or even the United States on, the, on their on their own terms. You know, tank battles in the open, or or uh, dog fights for uh, fighter jets in the air, and all that. That that must be the past because you have no chance to actually challenge these these three, four, five major actors around the world. And the other thing is urbanization. You know, earlier there was this, this idea that you can just uh, kind of bypass the urban areas and then uh, win the war again in the, in the big planes, like tanks on tanks. And uh, as soon as you have more tanks, the other guy is going to surrender and then you, you won the war. I, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, you know, if you look at any UN reports uh, by 2050, about 70-80% of the world population will live in, in cities and urban areas. If you want to really occupy and control a country and a society, you have to take control of the urban areas. And there is no more difficult uh, battlefield than than urban areas. So that's that's something that I, I think, you know, we, we are in a very unique point in history when smoke, and based on what you said about the technology and technological development, that we are a very unique point in history when small countries can actually take away the advantages of this these big countries and their militaries or make them completely irrelevant by choosing the very smart way of fighting and then developing uh, a purpose-built force for such fighting and then it has also big big uh, consequences for example for the defense industry because Defense industry obviously will still build these big tanks, airplanes, everything for the big conventional military. But now there will be a, a major demand from smaller countries for this very specific, you know, uh, resistance uh, enabling equipment like uh, UAVs, like like drones, like uh, professionalized uh, improvised explosive devices that you can utilize in in uh, in urban areas that are mass produced by the industry, not by two guys in a cave. So. I think the world is completely changing and uh, you can argue also that, you know, with, with the social media and the media being in, in, in everywhere, uh, you have a major limitation of the use of, of force and fire, especially indiscriminate fire. You cannot really level a complete, you know, city to the ground, killing millions of civilians because, again, you, you might win the conflict, but then what is happening after the conflict when you alienated yourself internationally, nobody's going to talk to you. And now you, you have to either rebuild that, that country or, or do something about it. So yes, long story short, again, I I think you're absolutely right. These big conventional wars are a, a thing of the past. And with that, I think, uh, especially for smaller countries, their current kind of conventional military culture-based defense strategies and military organizations should be a thing of the past as well. And and they have to sit down, take a critical look, you know, what kind of uh, enemies they might face. And then they start from scratch and, and build a, a completely new uh, defense enterprise.
1: Thank you, Dr. Shander Fabian. Thank you for your time and
0: uh, your valuable contributions. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.
1: And that's it for today's episode. Thank you for listening. You can find more about dr fabian's work in this episode's description i have also included a list of ukrainian charities uh, you can support if you're interested in supporting ukraine in these trying times i strongly encourage you to check it out we'll be back soon with more conversations on ukraine how the war affects the region and what future will wait belarus ukraine and russia after it's all over but for now thank you for listening or as they say over the ocean glory to ukraine I'm Dr. Mark Cashworth and I will see you in the next one.